I'm Siobhan McClay, she, her. And I'm Jen Jackson, she, her. And this is Embodiment for the Rest of Us, a podcast series exploring topics within intersections that exist in fat liberation. In this show, we interview professionals and those with lived experience alike to learn how they are affecting radical change and how we can all make this world a safer place for those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces. Captions and content warnings are provided in the show notes for each episode, including specific timestamps, so that you can skip triggering content anytime that feels supportive to you. This podcast is a representation of our co-hosts and guest experiences and may not be reflective of yours. These conversations are not medical advice and are not a substitute for mental health or nutrition support. In addition, the conversations held here are not exhaustive in scope or breadth. These topics, these perspectives are not complete and are always in process. These are just the highlights. Just like posts on social media or any other podcast, this is just a glimpse. We are always interested in any feedback on this process if something needs to be addressed. You can email us at listener, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, at embodimentfortherestofus.com. And now for today's episode. Hi there. Last time we went deep into our embodiment journeys. That was raw and also really, really necessary and scary. Ooh, necessary. That's one of my favorite words or phrases or words that I say or things I say all the time. Yes, love it. Necessary. I love it too. And I'm so glad that you introduced it to my life. I use it all the time now. Today, we want to continue this deep dive into our title and our podcast. First up, let's talk about the word and concept of embodiment, both in how it can be powerful and how it can be limiting. Let's dig into the nuances of this a little more. Jen, I know you have a lot to think and say about that. (laughs) I have a lot to say about a lot of things. (laughs) This included. So when I think of embodiment, I first go to thinking about how these concepts were introduced to me and things that I've said a lot about embodiment, including some that I think I'd like to adjust and probably never say again. Um, The first one is I was introduced to this as embodiment being thinking below the neck or feeling below the neck. Mm. And I've done a lot of processing about this and really thinking about how ableist that can be, that phrase, that to be embodied means that you have to be able to do something else, whereas embodiment mm-hmm. really is about being, not doing. Um, and so I've been thinking about this a lot and um, definitely going to come up with something new to say about this. So in thinking about embodiment, it also makes me think about where I learned about the concept, um, who I've heard talking about it, and also just ways in which we talk about it that aren't necessarily, even as a concept of talking about it, accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that I have said for a long time since I've learned about this that I'm revising right now is thinking or feeling below the neck, mm-hmm. right? Which is really mm-hmm. signifying that we've all been in our heads about it. But when we think about non-dualism, that our body is our mind and our mind is our body, um, something is already happening there. And below the neck can feel very ableist, mm-hmm. or I think it's not just feel, but is very ableist yeah. because that may not be accessible to everyone. Absolutely. It's, it's funny, I, when you first introduced this um, definition to me, obviously the ableism that we just, we talked about makes a lot of sense as well, but something I thought about um, as a Black woman is, like I said before, I really um, like the fact that I have natural hair, but I also <laughs> have at times struggled with how to take care of it, how to present myself with it. And so when I thought of from the neck up, I was like, well, from the neck up to my forehead. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, there's the conversation that a lot of black uh, black people have about how they present themselves in terms of their hair. With the Crown Act being enacted just last year in New York, I think that quite often black women and femmes especially have to make the decision of how they're going to present themselves to the world in terms of their hair. And I know, at least for me, don't want to speak for everyone, of course, I had to make a decision about how I was perceived. And so didn't always feel embodied in terms of my hair until I'd done some some hard thinking about it. So that's what I thought about when you said from the neck up. 
So, so whether we say above or below, when we're talking about a place in the body and trying to like make this distinction as some sort of analogy of how yeah. to be embodied, in other words, how to be in our bodies, yeah. we're leaving people out yeah. in this conversation. Yeah, I need to um, say below the neck, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I, I think there's, and there's another definition that I've heard that if you breathe and if you have a shadow, that you can be embodied. Mm. And I can think of examples where someone cannot breathe on their own and they mm. cannot leave their house. So how are they supposed to have a shadow? Um, which is not to say there's anything quote unquote wrong with these definitions if people think, oh, this is the one that resonates with me. This is, I get this is not how I am embodied and I would like to be that way. Absolutely. But I'm really trying to point out here is when you have ability, when that comes into play here, mm, it's one of the mm -hmm. things very rarely considered in these definitions, right? People with disabilities, seen or unseen, are often left out of these conversations. And it always comes up for me for embodiment mm. because there's a lot more nuance to have in this conversation. There's a lot more um, expansive conversation to have about this mm -hmm. and a lot more personal conversation to have about this. There's a lot of there are lots of books written about this. There yeah. are theories, like the main one is the developmental theory of embodiment by Neva Piron. I think I said that correctly, um, which is all about positive embodiment. So e mm. like that's the journey. So even the word positive there, when we're thinking about ability, when we're thinking about chronic illness, when we're thinking about racism and perception mm -hmm. by society, mm -hmm. when we're thinking about... Um, uh, productivity and a patriarchal structure that we live in all these things like positive may not be the word either yeah so that yeah. kind of messes with me mm -hmm. and in eating disorder work where I do um, nutrition rehabilitation and nutrition therapy um, there is an embodied self model by Catherine mm -hmm. Cook Cotton that talks about three ways in which um, we can consider embodiment um, which is something I really want to sit with as we have conversations with guests, um, right? This is a model that's bringing someone through recovery and towards something that's more them. Mm. And, you, and it involves multiple levels. And that is um, an individual level, which is like the brain and the body are the same. It's mm. lived experience. It's what we've internalized. We could think of lots of isms that we internalize that could be Absolutely. part of this conversation. And it's also our perception of things outside of us, right? So embodiment seems like it's very simple in those first like kind of descriptions that we were talking about but it's actually quite complicated because that's only one of these levels um and also like what is going on around us in a sociology kind of way right our mm. social structures um which is like relationships just like who's in our household who's around us what is our culture self-identified and otherwise yeah. uh, what power structures and influences are there on, on us and all of that and then there's something that's a combination of the two so psychosocial, mm. um, and that is that we don't exist in a vacuum, and therefore it's challenging to be non-dual. In other words, that we can recognize the brain as the body, and the body as the brain in like an awareness kind of way. Mm -hmm. And as I say that, anytime I bring up a structure, anytime I think about that, my brain next goes to thinking about how can I disrupt or dismantle this? Who does it not work for? Right, right. Um, who is it created by and who is that really applied to? Like how privileged do you have to be to have something be uh, boiled down to something that feels simple, even though it feels more complicated than those first definitions. It's still rather simple thinking about being a person in the world. Mm. So embodiment really is being in the body, not doing with the body, but being in the body, right? It's a step before doing. Yeah. And also, it doesn't feel like we can get there in our current society, no matter what your privilege level is, right? It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, just having non-judgmental self-awareness, one of the most basic forms of this, um, just being with yourself and not judging it can feel really not possible in a lot of situations. Um, so I'm really interested in exploring this embodiment concept some more. And just as you said, as you were asking me to talk about this, that it's like, what are the nuances of it? And who doesn't it work for? Like, where does it fail? Where does it not connect with people? And how can we make, think about ways in which it can? So I'm excited for that. Wow, that's, oh, this is such a good place to start. I'm so excited. Um, I really love the idea, love, not the idea, the truth of how embodiment is being within the body, being in the body. And it has to be a step before doing. Um, as I was, 
just listening to you reflect that for a second, it was really making me think about like my phrasing even in what I just said and how embodiment is something that I find is said by thin white women yeah. if it's so yeah. simple yes. to just be embodied, right? We really have the, okay, I'm going to say danger. I wasn't going to, but I'm going to. Like the danger of switching into something that's very much a toxic positivity space. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can even see it as a spiritual bypassing place mm. where it seems so simple to be embodied. Like, why don't you just be in your body? Is just like, why aren't you just mindful instead of mindless? Like we have some sort mm. of switch that's on and off that um, just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't have the willpower to overcome it, right? Very bootstrap, like something we yes. said in the last episode mm -hmm. and thinking about this. Like it just, it's oversimplified and it's and it really isn't meant for all of us yeah right it has the appearance of being for all of us and yet it is not so i was really thinking about that as you were reflecting yeah and, and you actually got to the point i was trying to get to like <laughs> i was struggling to get to when i when i think of what you said it's being in your body instead of doing i think that's that's where it feels difficult that's where there is that that aspect of privilege because i have the privilege to just be, right? I have the mental space, I have the emotional space, the physical space, the, all of this space that allows me to do it. It makes me think of the idea of doing, like I'm gonna do some self-care, I'm gonna do embodiment, and finding even the willingness and the awareness to just be is really difficult. I think that's why we, our society is so go, 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 because the idea of stopping and being is terrifying in some ways. Mm. And how safe does it feel? Yeah. Or not? Yeah. To be embodied yes. is a really important thing to explore. Uh, to be careful about the pace if we're the ones encouraging embodiment of mm -hmm. other people. And also with ourselves to discern the boundaries around how we'd like to be embodied. Because it's actually just as valid to not be embodied to be protected in a Absolutely. certain way that doesn't feel embodied mm -hmm. as it would be to be embodied depending on what the moment situation or what your discernment calls for. Absolutely. Mm. I completely agree. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and how about for you? What really sticks out for you about embodiment? Yeah. Thank you. Um, you obviously you've talked a lot about this as we came up with the title for the podcast. I, I, you know, did some research and looked up some ideas of what embodiment is, and I would say there are a few out there, like you, I don't want to say anything's wrong, I just, some sat with me in different ways. Um, one that I read was, that I really, really liked was um, by a psychotherapist named Dr. Anne Safi Biasetti, which is, her definition is, it is, it's means to engage oneself in the world through the experiences we feel in our body, through our body, and perceive through our body. So I really, really love that one. Um, I guess the only thing that doesn't feel completely supportive in that definition is something that you just spoke to. Um, sometimes it's more protective to be disembodied. When I think about experiencing this world through my body, sometimes that's not safe, right? Sometimes not having this experience within your body can be a trauma response. Maybe that's the way that you were protecting yourself in the moment of the trauma and from that moment forward. I think it also speaks to some ableism as well. Maybe you aren't as able to have this physical experience of the world, um, which is a huge part of embodiment. And so I really like that definition. It just falls short a teeny bit for me, but I, it's one that I keep coming back to because I love that it speaks to feeling it in body, through body, and then perceived through body, which is very different than just experiencing. It's the perception of how it's perceived through your body as well. Um, I you know, saw some other definitions online. I Googled, obviously. <laughs> you know, the most basic one was just, you know, Webster's definition, which is the state of making perceptible. Um, so when I think about it, it's the state of making the ability to make your make yourself perceptible to yourself, to other people. So it doesn't exactly get to the nuance of it because it's you know very basic definition, but I still it, it makes sense as a place to start. Um, yeah. Another one I read was a 
yoga collective, open floor movement practice, and it's um, the art of being present in our body as we experience life. I really like that one too. That one sits kind of nicely for me. Um, just as we talked, as I said a moment ago, just being, not doing, just being. So being present in the body. Um, but as I thought about this and did a lot more, you know, exploration, something that kept coming to mind for me is that embodiment is closer to your relationship with and within the world. And I think that this is probably a privileged thing as well. If you have the ability to think about what embodiment is and how you're going to work on your embodiment, I think that can also preclude you from feeling embodied. I think that embodiment has to have less focus on what the societal expectations are like this. This is what embodiment is. We're all embodied. Let's all be embodied. This is what it looks like. And also, you know, that which goes along with, you know, book knowledge, right? And also past experiences. So I think that at least for me, um, I think for a good number of people, embodiment is not just about integrating, you know, all the Siobhan's um, or all the Siobhan's experiences, <laughs> um, but just being present now. Um, yeah, it's keeping that some of that context, but it's also just being present now, which plays into mindfulness a lot for me. I don't think you can think yourself into embodiment, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. You can explore it intellectually, um, which I've done, <laughs> but you have to be able to step back from your learning and your experience in the world and just be. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from when I think of embodiment. When I, when we first started talking about this, I think you and I, we, um, in our many meetings, many conversations about this, okay, go define embodiment and then come back. <laughs> <laughs> and my definition was, and I say it every once in a while, integrating every aspect of myself. And that doesn't sit well with me because, I mean, obviously integration is a, is a good thing in so many ways. But when I think of integration, I think of integrating in a societal way, in a governmental way, um, different people from different cultures into the mainstream. It's that assimilation. And I don't love that. Um, that's why I didn't want to sit with that one. That's why I had landed that one. Um, because I felt like it needed to be more than that. That's kind of where I'm coming from when I think of embodiment. Ooh, oh my gosh. Okay, so that was so rich. So I'm gonna to try to make my brain slow down right now so that I could share you what was going on for me over here, which is uh, I'm gonna to stick to two things, I think. Okay. Um, the idea of perception. Yeah. And who is perceived in just like a societal way? Like if someone was going by behind, um, like a reporter in the field and someone was walking behind them, like what do people think of that particular person? Like that mm -hmm. level of perception? Like do they even notice they went by? Mm -hmm. um, it makes me think of disembodied or uh, beheaded fat bodies where they don't, yes. um, when they, when they, like they never have clothes that fit right and you mm -hmm. never see their face. Um, and you usually see them doing activities that would be stereotypically not okay according to our society that those that people would be doing right so absolutely like, um perception is a lot about like who gets to have power and permission mm -hmm. um who who probably shouldn't have that but like who generally gets that without anyone really thinking about it and when you were talking about that you can't really think your way into embodiment that was that really struck me because it seems like all, all of the conversations about healing of any kind, about being, involve words like resilience. Mm. I just texted you I said, yesterday. I was like, I, I'm saying resilience a lot. And I'm like, oh, I have such an interesting like dynamic with this. I don't always agree with myself. And I read somewhere that it's really about thriving. Mm. Right? Embodiment, mm -hmm. very much about thriving. But thriving is something that's not as simple as like, snapping a finger it's like right. who's allowed to thrive mm -hmm. right the most privileged um and just thinking about not trying to like think your way through it and you said mindfulness it really made me think of like um presence yeah. like not just perception but presence with oneself mm -hmm. without judgment uh being a witness of oneself which we've talked about before mm -hmm. um and if we are going to be present with ourselves and not judging we have to be able to be kind to ourselves. And that's one of the things that I think can be so not possible. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as being, it's like some, someone's not relaxed and you're like, just relax. Yeah. Someone's not being kind to themselves and you're like, just be kind. Like we have this 
notion, and I say we because I really feel like white women are a real problem in this, in their language mm-hmm. and what they're allowed to say, quote unquote, that no one mm-hmm. else is allowed to say. Mm-hmm. So it really makes me want to dig into this and think about it because things are not as simple as manifestation. So Rachel right. Cargill comes to mind every time I think about manifestation now, or she has a graphic that was commissioned that says something that she says frequently which is, did you manifest it, or is it just your white privilege? It's really going parallel to this conversation about embodiment. Yeah. Are you embodied, or do you just have body privilege? Oh, wow. Are you, like, and when people with body privilege are, which would include me, right? So I'm in a larger body, however, I'm in a white body. Like, mm-hmm. there's the elements of both here. I say, oh, let's just have you be embodied. Like I have some sort of say or control and that kind of thing. This doesn't feel like the right way to go about this. It really feels like individual conversations. Mm-hmm. What do people need? What do groups of people need? Mm-hmm. What do marginalized and oppressed um, individuals need? You know, there's a saying in public health that I've actually never liked, which is a voice for the voiceless, Ugh. right? For the underserved and the underrepresented. Yeah. Um, but they have a voice. Just no one's listening. Right. People are actively not listening in many cases. Their voices are being oppressed. It's part of being oppressed and marginalized. Is their yeah. voice is being quieted and pushed out of mm-hmm. the main area of listening by people with privilege who would like to have power over them. So just thinking about all that, just realizing how complex embodiment is. Right, right. Um, and not only can we not think our way through it or to it, like you said, um, but also there, it feels like there are barriers. There are things that we may not have consciously noticed or in the way, mm-hmm. like each of us as individuals. Yeah. Um, and it feels connected to everything because being in this body is connected to everything that we do. Yeah. Kind of sitting with all that as Ooh, we were talking. Yeah. Yeah. And so two things, this is what we do. We go back and forth all day. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing that just came to mind with what you just said is, I don't want to say that you can't intellectualize embodiment so that it feels like it's precluding someone, precluding me from thinking about it. I just don't want it. It's very easy for me to intellectualize things so that I don't have to face things on an emotional level. It's just a reminder, at least for me, that I can't think my way into embodied. I can't, I do want to think about it. Obviously, I need to like think about what's my embodiment practice, how my practice, you know, how my working toward it but I can't just get it to like I will write about it I will journal about it for three days straight and then I'll be embodied there has to be some action that goes with it I guess is what kind of came to me a practice is what I heard about your yes absolutely and another thing you said um about those you know those disembodied fat bodies that are shown doing you know the stereotypical fat people things which is bullshit and I hate it it makes me super cranky is um it made me think of revolutionary. That's I I find the idea of embodiment really revolutionary for fat bodies because we're always being told you have like what right do you have to be who you are, to exist within your body and not apologize for it every time that you interact with yourself or with the world. So it just feels really revolutionary to think of it that way. Yeah. Ooh, that made me think of violence. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I think well, also, the disembodied images makes me think, that's so violent. What a it violent is. choice. It is. And what it, thinking of violence also makes me think of masking mm. and ways in which we are not genuinely showing what we would like to do or like to be to other people and an yeah. area in which we feel like we can be perceived. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about protection, like really specifically showing up in a particular way that we have not, that's protective and helpful and yeah. like we have a lot of reasons to do it and can really also not be able to coexist with embodiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, something you were saying earlier about the amount of space or time that we might have the privilege to even consider this, yeah. to practice, like we have to be in order to be, like maybe we don't even <laughs> know what that feels like. Right. Um, when we want more compassion in our lives, often the thing that we have to do is be more compassionate, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it does, it's not necessarily the thing we'd like to do, be the first person to do that, to feel so oppressed and marginalized. So why would we be the ones to have the practice of embodiment? Why can't people just leave us alone, right? It's a real mm-hmm. challenging spot in like, it would be so understandable to me to be the victim in that moment. I mean, yeah. to like really lean into that and just not even go for embodiment. Because it may feel like an insurmountable experience. 
mm-hmm. something that's not available. Something, I mean, for anyone of any privilege level, much less someone um, who may not have other abilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. To like, sometimes it's a, a literal surmounting. Like you have to go do something and you may not be able to for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So just kind of sitting with that too. Oh, fascinating. Ooh, this is a really rich conversation. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, even more hours than we already had. <laughs> even more hours. <laughs> so now that we've shared about embodiment, let's expand this to who really gets left out of this conversation, something that we've labeled the rest of us. This is something that Jen and I have talked about a lot because it feels like the most important part of these conversations. Who is allowed to be embodied? Who isn't? What really stands out for you about this, Jen? That's a really good question. Makes you want to take a deep sigh before I begin the potential of the heaviness of some of my answers. I think that first off, what I would think about is anyone who may have a challenge being embodied, whatever that is someone not being able to or being stopped by someone else or a structure or a system um, and that not naming or considering these like through acknowledgements and accommodations, right? Creating space in which someone can be uniquely embodied mm. is a route to microaggression. When I think of rest of us, I actually think of microaggression a mm. lot. I mean, there's, I'm going to talk about some larger things like groups of people and isms and things like that. Sure. When I first think about it, though, microaggression are the things that we're, like, conditioned to do to each other that, well, I can only speak for myself here, many of the things that I've now realized are microaggressions, including about bodies to my own clients, was something that I was taught in my education towards being a dietitian, including um, Master of Public Health, right, my degree, where it's like, who is to blame for this? Is willpower something that's available to them? And other things that are zooming way out and not asking the person, what do you need? Mm. Um, microaggressions also include things like, um, you can't have Z until you've gone through X and Y. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like keeping comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and so the rest of us are really those that the isms, the stigmas, the biases, and just society and the way our society is structured leaves out of the conversation. So earlier I mentioned voice for the voiceless, right? The things in that small little phrase, the how it really speaks to how people don't have a choice, yeah. that the choice has been made for them, um, feels like the rest of us, whatever that would mean to someone. Um, I also think about research and who gets to do research and who research is done on right it's a lot of privileged people um there's a lot of research done on white men yeah. uh depending on the topic um there also can be research done on white women but it just still tends to be white men doing the research and also being researched yeah. on right and this becomes what's known as evidence-based right mm-hmm. and something that you and i've talked about before this is like a newer revelation for me I think I read this actually in a random tweet. I don't think this came from my own head. That is lived experience and more lived experience and adding other people's lived experience when combined and analyzed and confounders removed and quote unquote outliers, right? Talk about marginalization. Mm. um, Is combined to make evidence-based research. What a dietitian is supposed to use in in my practice or any dietitian. Um, is actually a combination of lived experiences that have been filtered in some way. Mm-hmm. So lived experience is often kept out of conversation. So lived experience feels like rest of us. And also, we don't really say out loud very much in my field or any field that I can really think about, except for some pretty radical fields <laughs> or fat politics, yeah. that lived experience is what research is about. Every single lived experience is valid. Something we've talked about about embodiment, and I can't remember if I said it right now, um, is validity, right? It's valid to have a lived experience. Um, But there's a lot of things in our society and research and health, right? Some of the isms, like healthism, that it has to look a very particular Mm -hmm. way. There's a look. Mm -hmm. That there's a thing to aspire to, Mm -hmm. right? Which is very purest kind of language of ascending towards something and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And also when we think about evidence-based research to kind of come draw a little circle around this, it's also there's a lot of other categories. Yeah. Um, so even in, re like I said, outliers, confounders, so name sample, like just taking some of them, population, like who gets to decide what is equal to population. Yeah. Um, and it leaves out self-determination, right? The individuals did not get to choose. Yeah. Someone else chose. Um, and this, I think, leads to a lot of harm. And it feels like deconstructing harm, thinking about being embodied, involves some really critical inquiry into what do we call evidence-based. Mm. Because it creates a lot of marginalization and oppression just by the very nature of it. Right? And also, it originally came about some of the original research is taking something that's been known in a culture for thousands of years and putting it inside of the scientific method yeah. and coming up with the same conclusions, conclusions, but calling that now the yes. evidence, mm -hmm. right? And which values and invalidates the other experience. Absolutely. That feels really important. Um, I hope I'm making sense. Yeah. This all makes sense in my head. It's really detailed stuff. Okay. And then I think a lot about this article that was written in, I think, I'll have to find the article, I'll put it in show notes, mm -hmm. but it's about the, the wellness industrial complex and something called the illusory truth effect, which is that individuals in positions of giving healthcare, right? Their job is to prescribe, give healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, that there is an illusion of truth that even they are susceptible to that just because like a, me, a dietitian says something about food, that that's now quote unquote the truth. Right, there's no need to look anything up. Yeah. Right, the expert mm -hmm. idea, um, even the label of a dietitian by the National Organization, the all caps nutrition expert is the slogan. Mm. Um, but that implies that we are to be listened to, even if we're not saying something that makes sense, even if we're <laughs> saying something that causes harm, right. even if we're saying something that marginalizes and others. Um, and we are susceptible to that in a way that like, we may not even notice yeah. that we're doing mm -hmm. that because it's such a cultural norm inside of this field. It's something I, I really wanted to make sure that I brought up here in the rest of us because it gives an illusion of who is allowed to be mainstream, who's allowed to be called healthy, yes. who's allowed to be um, the nutrition expert worth listening mm. to, right? All part of the same illusion of truth. Um, it makes me think of things like 10,000 steps, right? So, so 10,000 steps in Japanese culture, the number 10,000 has religious significance. Mm -hmm. It's not about achieving health. It's about creating a number for an ad campaign that matched a cultural value. Oh. So we've taken it over here in the United States and other places and said, this is the amount you need to equal health. Mm -hmm. But the original meaning isn't actually about health. It's about a religious significance, right? Connecting right. to your culture. Right. Um, so not only is that appropriating another culture and not really understanding what's going on, it's also creating an illusion that the truth, the answer to achieving health can be whittled down to numbers right. like this 10,000 step. There's a lot of examples yeah, of this. Mm -hmm. You can go into a lot of that. Uh, but that's just like my example for now. And I also, so the last thing I'm really thinking about is like what's in a name, not just of rest of us or embodiment, um, but also thinking about fatness and even the phrase fat phobia, which is about a fear of fatness, or that'd be the spelling that out to say what the, the word means, um, really lands as capitalizing on people's fears mm. and also ableist about people who have phobias that they cannot control. Mm. Kind of sits in both places for me. There's another phrase, which I have no idea how to pronounce. It's my first time ever saying it. Which takes away the fear part and it's more about um, prejudices and things mm. like that, about fatness. It feels more like it really aligns more with where anti-fatness comes from, which is like anti-blackness, right. which is eugenics, right? Who is allowed to be here? And those sorts of things, that term tends to go more with that. But even thinking of all of these things come up when I think of the rest of us, because language is so important. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to be careful about language right now, but I was also getting into it. So I'm sure I haven't been as careful as I was really hoping to. <laughs> Just thinking about how, how we talk about things creates the rest of us, mm. oppression and marginalization. Um, and it's not something that we are really, like in the area of free speech and right now a lot of contentious things, a lot of very opinionated people in a pandemic, 
Um, what are we all allowed to say? And then just like kind of stand in the quote unquote rightness of, mm-hmm. right? Not even try to budge about it, even if we're harming people in that moment, even if we're supposed to be um, reducing harm, those kinds of things. They all just kind of sit in this big, I'm like feeling like this is a big cloud of mess that creates the rest of yeah. us. And we're in this cloud. So it's really hard to see. And also very much harder to see outside of. Mm. So just really kind of sitting with also, the, I guess the final thing I'll say is this phrase, do no harm. I don't think that's a real, a reality no. about human beings. Mm-mm. We cause harm. We um, there's a lot going on for us and in the world. Um, and it's really about reducing harm. Yeah. Um, Repair, 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 repair. I think that's one of my favorite words. Repair, mm-hmm. repair, repair, repair. Um, and things that are restorative or transformative. Something happened. How can it be restored into what it was before mm-hmm. or something that feels like an element of healing? Or how can it be transformed? In other words, how can we learn and unlearn? Yeah. How can we not stay static? How can we be dynamic? How can we be human beings? Right. Um, feels like the real, the real thing there. So. Yeah, and <laughs> that was my other long-winded thing. What do you think? I loved your long-winded thing. Just keep talking. I love this. No, <laughs> I have thoughts, but this is this is really. You were you asked earlier, like, am I making sense? And I was like, yeah, you're making so much sense. And my head feels like, whoa, like it's just like how, you know, like the fireworks going off because it's just really blowing my mind. Um, I honestly hadn't yeah. even thought of rest of us in terms of microaggressions. I guess in my mind, I was thinking of these like macroaggressions, right? Like these very large, overarching ways of discrimination, ways of marginalization, but it really can come down to these very, I'm not trying to minimalize it, but microaggressions. I wasn't trying to make it sound like it was insignificant, just microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, between people, not smaller, just between people. Yes, and I love the idea of, and I know we've talked about it and we'll definitely keep talking about it, especially with people that we interview, but the idea that evidence-based practice is really just the normalization and the validation of lived experience and who gets to decide that. And like you said, it's cis het white males. And um, it's the, you know, the marginalization of those who have lived experience, but it's not seen, it's not seen as valid enough. Absolutely. Um, it also makes me think of credentialism, which we'll definitely be getting into because when I say you've said it and I've definitely felt it myself, like who am I to say that I'm the rest of us? Yes, I have some identities that make me, you know, more susceptible to marginalization and oppression, but I also have a good amount of privilege too. So who am I? Um, feel really aware of, you know, my privilege and using that privilege. Like, all of us have privilege in some way. I think it's important to use that privilege to not only make sure people get a seat at the table, but like to uproot the fucking table. Like, let's just toss the table and create a table that feels right for us. Maybe not even a table. Maybe it's a I don't know. Now I'm just talking. Maybe it's a nice carpet. I don't know. But we're going to, you know, using my privilege as a way. Like a 70s kind of, well, they always look to me like a well, but it's like the sunken couch thing where you can just like go and be comfortable and anyone can come in and go out as they want. Yeah, I had a sunken living room once and it was like the coolest thing. I just felt like it was just, oh, it just felt relaxing. I felt like I was like in the salon, you know, like the... I turn on this yeah. <laughs> it was it was beautiful. It was hundred years ago when I lived in when I was in college. Anyway, um, but, but yeah, um, it it definitely what you were speaking of definitely really drove home the idea that evidence based practice is just containing lived experience in a box. Mm. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> Google. Um, I did some, you know, just looking around at what other people 
um, said about the rest of us. Uh, when we first started, though, I think our first definition was those living in larger bodies, at least the people that we were going to be speaking to and about and for, um, yeah. were those living in larger bodies and in marginalized bodies or otherwise othered, and that was a lot of others. So we had to, <laughs> had to change it. You mean others. Uh, yeah, so many others. Um, and I thought that, you know, while it was a good place to start, it didn't really drive home the idea of oppression. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was a lot more passive, I guess the definition is, and it mm. needed to be like, we are making sure that we are very clear about the fact that these people are not ex allowed to exist the way they need to exist or deserve to exist. Um, that was one of my thoughts, of course. Um, I looked at uh, definitions again, and you know, um, in the Oxford <laughs> English Dictionary, the idea of othering is viewing or treating people or a group of people as intrinsically different from an alien to oneself. And again, that doesn't drive it home enough either. I think that that, yeah, someone's different, but there's nothing else that's kind of defined within that in terms of the mistreatment of people because of that. There's a magazine that came out a few years ago and there were four volumes of it um, called The Othering and Belonging Magazine. And um, what they describe, I, I'm going to come back to othering a lot, I, I just like the term othering, it just makes so much sense, was um, that marginalizing people is based on othering them because of a conscious or an unconscious assumption that they pose a threat to the favorite group, which I really, really like because it takes the Let's see onus back on the, the group in power. There's a power, there's a power dynamic in it. And I really, I really like that. And it can show, obviously we know it shows up institutionally in policies and laws. It shows up on a one-to-one -one level. It shows up in all kinds of ways, right? Economically, politically, socially, culturally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of what came to mind in terms of the rest of us. I think that when we, when I think about this, there's the, there can be a lot of things that play into it when people are trying to get their voices heard, both that, both that imposter syndrome, like, am I the rest of us enough? And also the, the suffering Olympics. Like, that's a terrible term, but I say it to my husband when we're fighting about who has it harder in certain ways. <laughs> Typically when we're parenting our children, <laughs> suffering Olympics, like, well, I have it harder because of whatever. And I think that that can be a barrier as well um, in terms of, uplifting the groups that need to be uplifted that's kind of where i'm coming from mm. on the rest of us oh my goodness so you also reminded me of the definition or just what we said about rest of us for the trailer yeah. for this podcast i'm going to read that because i was hearing it in what yeah. you said especially the very last part those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces or likewise blocked from defining their own existence. So the word blocked yes. is sticking out to yes. me here, as well as the theme in both, uh, I think is the theme in what we both said, which is about who allows who, what allows who, um, how are we allowed, yes. right? Just like thinking about like, who has the audacity, so there's this phrase caucasity, yes. which I actually use for myself when I'm being ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, how could I have not have noticed this? Oh, the caucasity in me. Yeah the audacity of, of a Caucasian um, or being white, like in considering something as mine to choose about mm. that has nothing to do with me. Something I think, so as a dietitian, I have to be very, very careful, very, very careful about what I am trying to have as mine in that power mm -hmm. dynamic, thinking about the people in power needing to be the one to repair, right? That's very restorative justice, right? The person doing the harm, the person with the power is the one who has the responsibility. Mm. That's really, I sit with this and think about this a lot. It's how I process things with clients. They're like, I think I'd like to do better about this. I'd like to start my next session with repair. Mm. I actually tell them that that's what I'd like to yeah. do. I have one later this week, actually, where I'm like, I think last time, that I did something. So I'd like to talk to you about three things. I named the three yes. things. And I said, I'd like to start our session with repair. Mm. Um, I also don't want them to be, oh, oh man, I don't want to use this word that's in my head. I don't want them to be caught off guard. Yeah. Um, I was going to use an ableist phrase. Oh, these are hard to unlearn and we are doing it. Yes. And I, I want them to know that I actually think that they are the expert of their own mm -hmm. experience. I hold that in our sessions. 
And not only that, but they're the decider of their experience. And I want to hold that also. So as you were talking, and I was thinking about that, about changing the language, right? It's just like people saying race is a cause of disease, right? First right. of all, race is a social structure. Yes. It's actually the ism. The one in power who's doing the ism is really where that's mm -hmm. happening, right? So racism mm -hmm. influences, is a cause of, right? The word cause can be very evidence-based yes. and tricky because you have to use the criteria of um, causation. So there's very few things that are caused in the evidence-based world. But influence, right? Mm. That racism leads, it can be followed in a straight line to reduce health outcomes. Yes. And it's not those people's fault, mm -hmm. right? It's the racism mm -hmm. and who enacted the racism and what institutions and governments held and promoted and glossed over and pretended it wasn't there and all those other sorts of things that are really in. Mm -hmm. And that on a level of one person, we can also do something about that. If we have the privilege of holding the space of health or mental, physical health, mental health, um, anything like that with another person that we're very careful not to hold it over them right this we're in this definition to bring it all the way back was block yes i don't want to be a block yes. there's already blocks. Mm -hmm. i would like i would like my harm reduction to be unblocking an area that i yes. block or someone else has blocked yes it. so it's really important so i was thinking about that as you were Ooh. as you were talking i have overthink <laughs> um please yeah what you just said, I was like already like repairing in my head. I, um, this is the reason that I wanted the format of this podcast to be with a partner with you. Um, and to also have it be interviewing people because what I said earlier, when I said we speak to, speak about, speak for it, and my whole body just went, oh, like I could feel myself like cringe when I said speak for it. I was like, oh, I need to fix that right now. And then I didn't know how to do it yet. Hmm. Um, because that to me goes back to blocking. Um, it's not my place to define anything. It's not my place to gatekeep. Because that's what it felt like when I said gate when I said speak for. So I wanted to repair. And I also wanted you as a partner because I feel like you'll check me on my shit, which is what I need. <laughs> so um, that's why it's so important to have these conversations rather than me just sitting on a podcast and talking all day because I could do that and not, nothing gets learned, nothing gets whatever. <laughs> I could just, let's talk about this now. Um, mm. So yeah, I think that, where was I going with that? I got really worked up and really excited and I don't know where I was going. Um, <laughs> so that's why I see this, this podcast as a platform for people to speak mm. on their own experience. That's the holding space that I want to do. Um, and that's why I invited you to, because I know that you can do that. You're so excellent at holding space for people, including myself. Um, where was I going? I got really excited. Well, I'm not even going to try to edit this out. I just got really excited and I don't even know what the point I was trying to make was. Um, well, I <laughs> wanted to reflect from what, from what you yeah. said, that it's an honor to be your partner yeah. and calling bullshit on each other is a really important part of any relationship yeah. in my life. Yeah. Not only that I am able to call bullshit on someone, like if I feel uncomfortable, but more importantly, that I accept yes. bullshit being called yes. on me feels really important mm -hmm. and feels like a very foundational part of our relationship yes. with each other. Yes. Um, and it's done in a very kind way, yeah. which we don't, these things don't have to be kind for me to accept them. <laughs> I don't need a particular tone right. to be, to be right. like, Jen, are you sure about that? But it's really like the honesty yeah. aspect, the authenticity that we're allowed to have. Um, I would even say a word more like genuine, yeah. which feels more foundational than those other two mm -hmm. words, that it's like saying it in the moment when it feels right. Yeah. Not just not, not stewing about it and having <laughs> to come back later and have this. That feels like a very important space to hold for other people as well. Mm -hmm. Like to ask for, for clarification when we need it. Um, if I realize that something really applies to me that's said when we're interviewing someone, I want to be able to say that honestly. Yes. That's something I'm holding myself mm -hmm. to where I'm like, so I've definitely done that. Yeah. And I really feel like I would like to do that differently. And I don't know that I'm sure how right now. Um, do you have anything to share with me? And or I need to go do my work about right. that, right? It doesn't have to be anyone teaching me. But so just excited. It is. Um, it's it's a really wonderful, beautiful dynamic that I feel. It's holding things that are very heavy. Yes. Uh, excuse the expression, but like very meaty, like just like you know, just a lot to uncover and explore and expand about together. Especially the last episode. Oh yeah. And like be excited about what's to come in a way that makes me giggly and like 
want to laugh with you, right? Just like balance of things. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a few times, I think, but I just like really feel it right now. Absolutely. In fact, I'm not that sweaty today. Me either. Like, so, <laughs> and normally, really we're interesting. Like going. <laughs> yeah, normally I get really nervous and we're feeling sweaty. I feel very grounded yeah. in this one, which I think is uh, speaks to the what these topics yes. are and like where we're going mm-hmm. in our inquiry about this, which feels really, really important. It really does. It really does. Yeah, I am. Mm. I love this, this platform. I love these conversations as, uh, you know, we came up with these definitions and I'm wondering, you know, two years from now, if we'll still have the same definitions because we're going to keep having these conversations with each other, conversations with interviewees, with you, our listeners. And I just can't wait to see how it evolves. Mm. Ooh. Oh, I'm excited. That's awesome. <laughs> and I would love to explore that to make it, I'm making a little checkbox in my head to explore how we feel about this. Yeah. I would love to do yeah. that. Wow. This is, this is great. This just, oh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It feels really rich and really nuanced. Um, as we explore this podcast, as it continues, we think it's really important to reflect on how we can take what we learn and unlearn and be in action. This is something we're going to ask, you know, at the end of all of our conversations with people. So let's, do for the first time now. What can we all do, think about, and focus on to take what we've learned from this podcast to help make a difference? Jen, why don't you go first? Ooh, okay. So I love this one. Um, and I thought about this for uh, many days. <laughs> Just like excited for this part of things. It's what feels expansive to me. It's also what feels like we get to learn through this yeah. and unlearn, like you said like growth and feeling dynamic and also uh, other words were coming to mind like it feels really important to name things something that we're already trying to do and that I feel like an impact of talking about something on this level where we have named things Mm. really explicitly first of all from my body to other people that feels like a release of some kind right that something has been living in me and it feels really important to say it and share it becomes a shared thing that feels really important and also still going with that naming thinking about which things intersect with each Mm. other i don't think we've said the word intersection in this episode so far but it feels really important um that there are intersections of body justice, that liberation, we could call that whole thing body liberation if we made it one term, um, and the larger societal issues of oppression and marginalization, marginalization that includes our roles, like identifying our roles, mm. being honest about having been a part of something, even if we don't agree with it now, even if it caused harm and we need to undo harm. Um, these things, like on an individual personal level, um, feels like acknowledging how we benefit from harming other people mm. just like other people benefit from harming us right yeah. we were talking earlier about like who wins in this scenario who benefits who makes money off yes. of this right we could go in a lot of directions um harm reduction feels like a really important thing to name right now and like about what anytime we go down that road um harm reduction creates space undoing harm or reversing it or reducing it or whatever language ends up being appropriate for a given situation creates space and in that space people can have the opportunity to find a more embodied self for example right because there's space especially if it's intentionally created by another person especially if that person is themselves if they're able to do that right if the space that's created is for less marginalization and less oppression Mm -hmm. about something Mm -hmm. even in smaller ways um, I, it keeps making me think of simple adjustments and I'm going very micro again here, like person to person kind of thinking. I think this is where I think about, I, I think, of, I actually think I learn about it from others mm. on a real macro level, but the level I'm thinking about, like, especially my own repair as a white person with a lot of privilege, mm. um, is simple adjustments. So something, um, that I learned from one of our future podcast guests is how white women, inclusive of myself, say those white women or just label it white women or talk about white women a lot when the real answer is us and we Mm. something i said earlier in this podcast actually which i'm now like getting present to it's a habit of mine now but it feels like a really big deal to keep my responsibility always within my language um 
not just for, and not for myself. It's not really for me. It's like a, something that I really trained myself to say, this we and us. Um, so that even if I wasn't doing it consciously, I could hear somewhere subconsciously that I'm always taking responsibility. Mm. And also when other people hear me say that, especially one-on-one yeah. or in a group where I'm um, a white person in a position of power mm. with other people, mm-hmm. um, that they know it doesn't make me safe. And I'm even going to put that in quotes, right? It's not me looking for safety. It's an invitation for other people to come. Ooh, safe. Yes. That feels like the ultimate example. Like that's the one I, I always think about. It actually took me a really long time to unlearn that. And I was called out multiple times. And I think that's, I thought, I think it was really important. And I was grateful each of those times that I was called out. It was like a deeper level of wanting it to change, right? Sometimes it's a process, a practice. Um, and it feels good to be here. Actually, not that I have to feel good. That's something that white women try to do, right? Make ourselves comfortable mm-hmm. so that we have learned that like we feel good now. Like it actually feels, it feels good. And it also feels really sticky at the same mm. time. Like it feels like I can make the mistake like I did before at any moment because I don't have to do this. I have chosen to do it and I can feel the tension between those two things. Um, and there are so many things that I probably do that I have never even touched yet that I really need to have the same sort of thought process mm. about and uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. Um, because participating in changes to a system requires that kind of self-awareness, I think. Um, including undoing harm or repair or restoration work. It also feels really important on a field level, like the field of dietetics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Dietitians. Um, but within the profession has a lot of racism issues. Um, DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion, Mm -hmm. um, being something that's very performative, Mm -hmm. including asking people in black and brown bodies who are dietitians to be volunteers, not even to get paid for Mm -hmm. their work, right? There's a lot to be said for that. Um, addressing those systems specifically, something that's really on my mind and I think about a lot is. If I was back to being in my didactic program, so mm-hmm. like the bachelor's part of the degree that everyone does, what would I have liked to learn then? Or what would I have liked to have been shared with everyone there or allowed to be a conversation by those in power that validates fat bodies, mm-hmm. that validates black and brown bodies, yeah. indigenous bodies, people of color, that validates um, disabled bodies, mm-hmm. disabled people, that validates neurodivergence i didn't even hear that term until long after being a dietitian and myself a neurodivergent right i would have loved to know that all that time ago um as well as in the internship right where they're in any kind of program where people are working on health for other people Mm -hmm. and the power dynamic really begins um learning what a microaggression is and not wanting and trying not to do that. I mean, there's a lot in the dietetics field. I mean, that would require a very big shift, <laughs> very, very big shift. But it's still on my mind. Yeah. But that's something I would like to influence. Something that it, something that I'm actively doing right now. I've just joined a toolkit, or I'm considering this toolkit that would be given to didactic programs and also to an internship to inform Ooh. them of some of these things. Like so just begin naming some things. I haven't gotten very far into it. This is a hope I have yeah. right now. My hope is that they will be able to meet me in a place where we can say things explicitly, mm. like I'm trying to say, right? Ways in which this can feel expansive. And none of this is actually to toot my own horn. It's to say that it wasn't that hard to find opportunities to have a say. Uh, I don't know if that's the time that we're in. I don't know if it's my privilege mm. speaking because someone for me to ask me to be on this toolkit. I didn't just go find it myself. Um, but I, it's still interesting, right? It's still in this direction of how can embodiment for the rest of us be something that's on everyone's mind, right? That is said in these places where people are going to be the ones in power, quote unquote, the nutrition experts, et cetera. That's where I'm sitting with this today. Oh, that was a really exciting answer and really rich. And I really appreciate where you're coming from on it. And as one more thing, actually, as I was talking about this toolkit, what's already coming to mind is they're asking someone, even though I don't have body privilege, and I'm hoping that we will be able to talk about anti-fatness in the field. I'm still a white woman. I'm still a white dietitian. I'm the majority of the field, over 90% made up of 
people who look like me, at least in the whiteness category. And how I would like to make sure that I'm not speaking for other people who do not have this privilege um, and how I want to have boundaries about those people being included. I was just like realizing that in real time. Um, that that would be really important. Mm. So things like that, right? Adjusting, like, the excitement of, oh, I get to talk about this, but stepping aside from having the power if, if, so that someone who is marginalized and oppressed more than myself, yes. um, who doesn't have these privileges mm-hmm. that I do, has the opportunity to speak, so it's really important. So that's not lost on me either, right? So I appreciate even saying that out loud yeah. and saying that that was going to happen so that I could even consider that, right? That kind of work, pausing, and giving myself a chance to change my mind feels really important and that it leans in a direction that matches my values and is not um, purist or supremacist, right? That's not just look at all the things I can do, but it's like, what can we do? Who needs to be the one speaking? Is it me? Mm. Just really kind of sitting with all of that. Ooh. Thank you. So thank you for that space. And how about for you, Siobhan? Well, on the other end of the spectrum, I am not prepared for this question at all. So I am kind of winking it as we talk, but things that keep coming to mind for me are something I just said, um, that this definition is going these definitions are going to keep evolving and keep expanding. And I'm really excited about that. In the moment, how I can use all that we're talking about, all that we've talked about to make a difference. I think that changing my own language not that I'm going to like make a huge impact on everybody, but at least changing my own language and the people that I work with and interact with um, will hopefully make me a safer person to talk to, will hopefully make me um, help other people feel more embodiment, more belonging within their body. Um, not saying fat phobic, which I say all the time, but fat, um, I can't say the word. I just seen that miasma and I know that's not the word. So I'm going to learn the word and be able to say it. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Fat Mizia. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Fat sick. Okay, we're gonna go with that. I'm gonna I'm gonna learn. That's my other work by our next appointment. Okay. <laughs> our next recording. <laughs> but yeah, uh, changing my own language, changing my own way of thinking about this um, in terms of making a difference. Um, also, just being, you know, kind of sitting with that imposter syndrome and using it as a way to help other people, including myself. I think that's that's where I'm sitting with it the most right now. Mm. <laughs> oh, I love that very much. I love the vulnerability that was inside of what you just said, like the not feeling prepared and also yeah. imposter syndrome. And I think these are really important things to think about. I think it's so honest, so important, sorry, to be honest about what we do not yes. know. I don't want to pretend that I know how to say that word, which I think is bad. Right. I don't want to pretend that I've read every book on this topic because part of this is to, although I have an instinct about that, right, to perform yeah. and to make sure that I'm, like, have everything in my head. I'm also really enjoying this, like, place we've settled into together, which is actually exploring it, expanding together, yeah. even contracting together when something feels tough. And creating and holding that space with people that we interview and that they can have the space that they need to explore these concepts. That's something that I know that we're going to be doing. Like I can feel it deep within me that that's how it's going. Like this permission to explore. Earlier I said that talking about resilience is just so tricky in my mind. It doesn't feel like the right word. Thinking about who's in power, um, but thriving, that people can have a moment of thriving with us, that I can have that moment with them, that feels really important. It feels very radical, like you said earlier. It feels like a like a really powerful space. It's like so interesting to me that I'm like actually skimming right now, like touching my I face. I can see your face getting red. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I can't wait. Yeah. I'm also getting sad because I'm thinking about who we're going to interview. It's making me nervous. Yeah. So I'm getting sad. <laughs> well, I also wanted to say, alternatively, Yes, it's important to admit what we don't know, but I think it's also important to admit what we do know. I think that I decided to do this podcast and you were the first person that came to mind, never a doubt in my mind, because not to toot our own horns, but I think that we both hold the capacity to hold space for people. And I think that's really important. I think, like you said, making sure you're a safe person. I like to think, obviously we have lots to learn because we always have lots to learn, but 
we are coming from this from a place of curiosity and joy and just being open and safe for people to talk to us. And I think that's really important. So I wanted to name that because part of my own embodiment process is actually, you know, acknowledging that I have some strengths because I'm real good at not. <laughs> so I wanted to bring that to, to the forefront as well. Yeah. Ooh, so my friend Chelsea says, She'd like to say something with grace whenever she's going to toot her own yeah. horn, which I think is such a wonderful way of saying this. Like, it's it's okay to say what we're good yeah. at. It feels like in society, our society, and all, especially if there's anything about being perceived, yes. that we get perceived in a way that does not feel good if we say like, "I'm good at X." Yeah. Versus like, "I'll produce X." Mm. Like, if we say, "I'll do it," that's different than being like, "I know that," but like, not even offering it to do it. It's like, I know something. Yeah. About that. Feels. Um, I totally agree with you. It's like, it's a full picture of something. Yes. And also there's like nuanced places, like the I don't know places, not the I don't know, like I don't know it and I know that I don't know it, but also this other space. I don't know that I don't yes. know something. Realization mm -hmm. that we might have in real time, like I have never conceived of this. Right. <laughs> I've never contemplated it, right? These lovely C words that are like, I, I just haven't ever been in a place um to even have this expansive part of myself happening and i'm really excited for uh, that me so too. this is really interesting to explore and i cannot wait to see how all of these conversations yes evolve. absolutely uh we'll see you next time when we have our first podcast guest we are so excited <laughs> thank you <laughs> you Thank you for listening to season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of Us podcast. Episodes will be published every two weeks wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the podcast at our website, embodimentfortherestofus.com, and follow us in social media on Twitter at Embodiment Us. And on Instagram at Embodiment for the Rest of Us. We look forward to being with you again next time in conversation.